You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'd like to introduce Peter Straub. Um, we are here to talk about the uh, two-volume uh, Library of America. I don't, I don't know if the title of this canonical is, is necessarily something we all uh, want to argue about, but it certainly is a monumental anthology and one of the largest anthologies of American fantastic tales ever put together by an uh, enormously respectable publisher. Um, and those of us on the panel, myself, I've... Uh, uh, I've, I've read it. Um, S.T. Joshi has read it, I know. And, um, and Peter did it. And um, Tim Powers and Brian Evanson are in it. <laughs> so we have it covered. Uh, but I think we should start by asking Peter, uh, by t- doing exactly to Peter, what he just did to me. Uh, <laughs> and that is explaining what you had in mind in uh, terms of assembling the collection the way you did. Okay. Um, I was invited to do this by uh, Max Rudin and Jeffrey O'Brien, who are the two faces that I know at the Library of America. They're both uh, very well-read and intelligent and um, rather um, um, generous people. I'd worked with them before when I did a H.P. Lovecraft volume for for the library. And so they they asked me uh, uh, two or three years ago if I'd be interested in doing this, and I instantly said yes, because we'd all had a very good time the first time around. Um, And it struck me that what I was doing, what I I had agreed to do, was in some ways a little dangerous in a way, and also it involved an immense responsibility, because the Library of America is our version of the canon. It's our Pleiad editions. And um, so I had to do it right, uh, as right as I could anyhow, <laughs> or wish to. And, and um, I also understood that I was being given an opportunity, opportunity in a way to shape the way the uh, fantastic horror uh, genre is to be perceived and the way it's to be experienced. Um, that in, in itself was dangerous, but it was less dangerous if I remember the first part, um, to try to d- do a, a good job of simply selecting the right kinds of stories. And then I spent uh, oh, at least two years digging around, buying book after book from Abe.com, yeah. um, getting very helpful advice from a gentleman named Stefan Jabanowitz. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah. a man whose house must be filled with file cabinets with every issue of weird tales, astounding tales, amazing tales, um, and millions and millions of books. Uh, I, I, I relied uh, a great deal on Stefan's advice, um, and uh, I, was, I, was, I was very glad to be able to do so. Um, I also wanted to... to uh, represent a phenomenon that I had um, been very happy to observe over the past 15 years or so. That is a kind of widening out of what we could call a fantastic tale toward uh, the mainstream in general. Um, uh, A a movement into 
an understanding that this kind of writing is literary as well as everything else it is. That uh, seriousness need not be uh, negated by the introduction of the fantastic. We all know this, I think. But uh, there, there are many and many a party who objects to this uh, sort of idea very strongly. Uh, so the person who always comes first to mind when I, when I think of this kind of phenomenon is Kelly Link, because she was the clearest case I saw of it the, when I first began to see it. A, a, a marvelous, world-class writer who wrote as though she were inventing the world around her um, and uh, did so without consulting any, any frames except her own. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm still dazzled by my first impression of Kelly Link. And I think she's embarrassed that I keep on going on this way about her, but I do. Um, anyhow, I think that's pretty much what I had to say. ST? Well, I can lend us a little more background into this because I've known uh, Jeffrey O'Brien off and on for more than 10 years. Uh, and we've been throwing all ideas around uh, all over the place. Mm. Um, uh, I first approached well. Okay, there's another. There's another thing. First of all, O'Brien uh, is very sensitive to genre literature. He's, yeah. he's very fond of genre literature, which is great. Uh, I think his particular interest or specialty is the hard-boiled detective novel. Uh, now, uh, and of course, the Library of America has done Hammett and Chandler, and then they did a, a noir novels volume, which I think had Jim Thompson and a whole bunch of other people. Uh, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that those particular volumes wouldn't have come out uh, if Jeffrey O'Brien weren't the editor. I mean, by God, Hammett and Chandler deserve to be canonized if anybody does. Uh, and, and if other people don't think so, well, that's their tough luck. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but it's clear that, that, that O'Brien likes to, to push these writers forward and, and, and hold them up to the literary uh, community saying, you better read this stuff. You know, it's, it's long past time that these people can be ignored. Uh, so, you know, of course, I talked to him about Lovecraft. Uh, I talked to him about Ambrose Bierce. Hmm. And I will get into this later, maybe. Uh, we are finally going to do Ambrose Bierce as a separate volume. Good. Uh, yeah. It's taken forever <laughs> to decide that but, and, and decide how it's going to be done, but I think we're going to do it. Whether I am officially the editor or not, it hardly matters, but they are finally committed to doing uh, a solo Ambrose That's Bierce volume. That's all right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, the other author I happen to be interested in uh, or know something about is H.L. Mencken, which is a whole separate thing, but... Uh, frankly, in my humble opinion, Beers and Mencken ought to have been in Library of America way earlier than, than Lovecraft, let's be honest. <laughs> uh, and the other background that I can provide, I mean, I would like to think that the work of Lovecraft scholars of the past 25 to 30 years kind of laid the groundwork for the separate Library of America Lovecraft that, that Peter uh, did. Uh, you know, as early as the mid '70s. Well, that's when I got into Lovecraft's scholarship, and I was I was a, a teenager then. A, you know, my 17, 18 years old, and I started assembling an anthology of Lovecraft criticism. And I said, "All right, I'm going to do this book, but I'm going to aim it for the university press market." I could have gone to any number of the small presses in the field, but that wouldn't done any good. Frankly, the way our culture is set up at this moment. Canonicity is largely determined by the academy, uh, by professors. If they teach something, it becomes canonical. I mean, it's not quite as simple as that, but that's, that's, that has a large part to do with it. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you another story. I've done a lot of books for Penguin now, Penguin Classics, and recently they told me that they cannot justify publishing a book 
unless it has reasonable prospect of classroom use. Hmm. So they know that Penguin Classics even has to sell widely to colleges and universities or high schools even for that matter uh, to justify a publication. This has, no, that strictly speaking has nothing to do with canonicity, it has purely to do with finances. Hmm. They have to sell a certain number of copies to justify publishing a Penguin. Uh, anyway, the point is that then I did the Penguin books, and those came out by a weird accident, but we won't go into that. But uh, I like to think that, that those three Penguin books that I did with extensive annotations in 99, 2001, and 2004 sort of laid the groundwork uh, for a Library of America Lovecraft. Uh, uh, but whatever, you know, because the Library of America Lovecraft did use uh, my text that I established for Arkham House back in the 80s, and I was happy to let them use it. Um, and the, the editor used your research. Well, that's fine. Hey, the research is out there. I mean, I don't, I don't have claims to that either. I mean, it's, it's, you know, uh, sure. But, uh, but you know, I mean, uh, you know, let's, let's, you know, if you're going to do something, let's do it right. You know, and uh, and so, I, I mean, I, uh, uh, I will say one thing. Jeffrey O'Brien or somebody at Live America sent me your selection of Lovecraft stories, uh. and I said, you know, something's missing here, The Outsider, uh. and they put in The Outsider. Oh, good, okay. So, uh, so uh, that, I was, it was nice, nice to have that in there. <laughs> not that that's the <laughs> world's, it's not the greatest story in the world, but I, it's sort of a signature piece by Lovecraft. Well, so I thought, I thought it felt, I felt it ought I'm to be there. I'm glad they listened to you. Yeah, well, there it is. Uh, so that's kind of the background. I think, if, at least for Lovecraft, this, this, this case had been building up for decades as to why Lovecraft really is canonical. One quick anecdote and I'll finally sure. shut up. I think when the Ch- Chandler volumes came out, uh, they came out in like the 90s, right? Yeah. I mean, they came out well before Lovecraft. Anyway, yeah. Joyce Carol Oates reviewed them in the New York oh, Review of God. Books. And she loved them, and she loved them, but she says, you know, if you've done Chandler, why don't you do Lovecraft? Why don't you do Ray Bradbury? We'll get into that later. Maybe. But you know what? Uh, what I think of when I when I remember that review is her great objection to Raymond Chandler on the basis of his being what she called a misogynist, hmm. and I thought this I was so that. distorted and um, wrong, really. And the well, the, the the other factor which is in the background here, and Jeffrey O'Brien is well aware of this, is, is, is in terms of canonizing previously non-canonical writers. The best-selling books they have now are. Mm-hmm. Philip K. Dick, Philip K. Dick, followed, uh, followed by I think by Lovecraft. I want to get back to the <laughs> sort of organization of this anthology, though. And you've seen it. There are obviously copies in the book room. I've seen them around, um, and I think there are multiple anthologies within this uh, within this one. And some of it, uh, some of it is an historical survey. Uh, some of it is archaeology. Some of it is finding people that most of us have never heard of, like Harriet Excuse Prescott me. Spofford. I just love to say Spofford. Um, and, um, and, and some of it, especially in the second volume, uh, is... Uh, and and, and there's, a, there's a reasonable selection of pulp tales, which is, has always interested me that Jeffrey O'Brien had an enormous tolerance for people like Donald Wandre and... Uh, um, David H. Keller. Uh, uh, he said to me, I want, I, I, I want to see some pigeons from hell in this book. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you should have yeah. included that story. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. well, I picked my own. I made my own mistakes. I want to... Um, uh, but the, 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 toward the end, the second half of the second volume is almost all contemporary, very contemporary. 
Um, and it's not the, and, and that's, I think, what I think of as a rhetorical anthology. It's an anthology making a critical argument. Mm. It's not the first time this has been done. I mean, uh, actually, uh, one, one of the, op- it seems to me, obvious antecedents of this is David Hardwell's The Dark Descent, which was a rhetorical anthology that made a particular point about the history of horror fiction. And as a result of the argument you're making, the two gentlemen sitting at the end, neither of whom have been widely associated with, with this sort of traditional genre work are here. And, and Tim Powers isn't even generally associated with short fiction, and you're in it. So, Tim, why do you think you're in the book? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's nice. Uh, is that Mike Wallace? <laughs> I, I think Peter's a very nice man is why. Uh, <coughs> actually, I'm, uh, this isn't on, is it? I can talk about um, I'm more... Uh, Surprised and pleased to be in the anthology, then I uh, am ready to guess why I am. I just sort of figure I'm glad it happened and there wasn't a recount. Uh, You don't know. (laughs) But um, looking at it as an anthology and ignoring my own story in it uh, so that I can be objective, it does seem to be one of the one of the cornerstone anthologies of our field, along with things like uh, The Adventures in Time and Space, you remember that one. Um, But of course, this differs in being so, by definition, canonical. Uh, A Library of America, and preceded by all those Faulkner, Melville, Mm -hmm. uh, even simply the physical appearance of the books, the little ribbon. no lurid illustrations. Right, right. No like illustrations. I, I always figure it, in most cases it would be worthwhile to pay extra for the unillustrated edition. <laughs> uh, or leave blank pages so you can illustrate your own, everybody. Um, but um, I do, um, even without me being in there, I, I do appreciate the uh, contemporary uh, inclusions. And I think, um, yeah, Kelly Link is uh, uh, it would have been a big blind spot if she hadn't been picked. I remember I was a clarion instructor when she was an applicant and Karen Joy Fowler and I were looking at the you know submission stories and I said what do you think of this Kelly Link? And both of us agreed she's really too good. I mean she doesn't need any help we can give her, but how fun it would be to have her to talk to. <laughs> and, and so we said, so let's accept her on that basis. Um, and, and I do think she, the important, the, the reason she belongs in there and the reason she's gonna help to make it uh, a respected anthology in years to come is what you were saying, that she is her own genre. And one of the virtues of pulp fiction, especially science fiction and fantasy, is that it serves as a kind of sanctuary for writing talents that don't really fit anywhere else. Philip mm-hmm. K. Dick mm-hmm. uh, isn't what you could call a, a, any kind of uh, typical science fiction writer, but it was the field that was open enough to welcome him. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it's a gorgeous anthology, and I'm grossly pleased to be in it. 
I, I'll be using this for show-off value for years. <laughs> Brian. Brian. Um, I, I'm, I'm also incredibly pleased to be part of the volume um, and, and also a little stunned um, to, to, you know, to actually be in there. It's, it's really a delight. And, but also a delight to, to, to see myself next to people like, like Tim and, and uh, Kelly Link and, and George Saunders and a number of other people Lovecraft. who I really admire. Yeah, yeah. The, the notion that you could be, the, the thing that, that amazed me the most is, is I look at the back of the book and, yeah. and you know, Nabokov's on there. Ha. and, and Nabokov. Like that. It's really, yeah. It's, that it's crowd. pretty stunning. <laughs> but I, I think for, for me, I, I mean, I... I uh, I'm someone who, who grew up reading science fiction and fantasy and horror and then at a certain point was kind of talked out of reading it very much or at least reading it very publicly <laughs> um, by, by various teachers and things like that. Um, but then as, as time went on, I, I began to realize that the distinctions, I, I teach at a university and the distinctions that my colleagues are making are, who are 10 or 15 years older than me um, between genre and literary fiction are just not distinctions that I really buy or that I really understand. Um, I think it's partly because uh, you know, I grew up in a time where you know you, I, I would go see a Disney movie one day and a literary kind of art house movie the next day, and then after that I would go see a horror film, and 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 that seemed that kind of interchange and that kind of interaction of different things seemed to me much more important than than one genre or another genre. And then at a certain point, I began to realize that 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 literary fiction and what people were calling literary fiction was very much a genre in and of itself. Kind of a right. dead genre. Kind too. of a dead genre in some ways. Um, so, so for for me, one of the delights of, of being part of this anthology is is thinking that it, it's, you know, it, to me, it's an anthology that 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 both kind of, you know, declares these works canonical, but also calls the whole notion of what it means to be cano canonical into question. Um, I've been really impacted by the. Uh, um, um, uh, what, what Jeffrey O'Brien did with, with Chandler and Hammett, that was, I think, really uh, very important for me as a writer. And, and then Ooh. what Peter did with, with Lovecraft, and then also uh, Peter's New Way Fabulous issue in Conjunctions was, was incredibly important to me as a, as a kind of developing writer as well. Um, and, and, but for me, it's, it's the idea of blurring those lines, um, including both people who are well-known or well-recognized within the field and people who are not, and then also uh, uh, also including stories sometimes that are, are less known by people that we know very, very well. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important, for instance, that, that the Poe story that's included here is not the Poe story that everybody knows from high school, which would either be The Pit and the Pendulum yeah. or The Cask of Amontillado. Um, so maybe that's all I'll say. Yeah. I'd like to, yeah, uh, I'd like to ask Peter, um, did he face any copyright issues? Because I, I, I compiled a Penguin classics anthology called American Supernatural Tales, uh, and I say I was green with envy that, that, I, that I, my book is like a third the size, I just couldn't include all the people I wanted to include. But one of the people I wanted to include was Rod Serling. And his, I, I, aside from his importance as Twilight Zone guy and all that stuff, I think he was a fine, fine writer of short stories. Uh, he has, what, six, seven collections of short stories. But his widow refused me permission to include a story of his, huh. for no reason. Huh. Uh, Isn't that wild? It's, I, I have no idea why she would not want a Rod Serling story in a Penguin, uh, or in any other publication. Right. Uh, so did you face anything of that sort? Um, I didn't. I didn't um, uh, select a Serling story, uh, and I had no trouble 
Uh, I did edit this book called Poe's Children, and there are some very well-known contemporary writers who just made it impossible for me to pick the stories I wanted because they, they demanded so much money. Uh, you know, like $30,000 uh, to have your goddamn story printed yeah. in. It's nuts. <laughs> or, or the current publisher um, who, you know, who, 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 who'd done those stories in the first place simply refused uh, to, uh, to allow me to reprint them. Again, I, I don't, I don't get it, because you would think it would help, um, it would yeah. help sell more copies yeah, sure, instead of yeah, sure. cause fewer to be sold. Um, I did the problems, the only real problems that I ran into had to do, like STs, with space. If I could have done ah. another two volumes exactly that size, ah. had I been allowed to, and, and uh, when I first submitted my uh, proposed list. They, they almost fainted. They said, Peter, you know, we only have about 800 pages per book here. <laughs> we don't have 1,600 pages per book. And it was very clear that was about money. They wanted to trim the size of the volumes yeah. to save money on the paper. Because and what happened, if you look at the early Library of America, yes. they're over 1,000 pages. They're huge. Pages. I know. And they made a conscious decision, I don't know, 10 years ago, that we just can't publish books that big purely for financial That's right. reasons. So now they're down to the 800 page size. So what this meant for me was that uh, there, 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 there were a number of borderline people, all the very fine, who had to go. But then it, when it came down to the fat of the list, and there were people I really wanted to put in but couldn't because uh, either uh, Jeffrey uh, said no, or mysterious people I never met who are on the board said, you know, we don't really like that story. You can't. So Interesting. I, I know. I thought I was all done. I thought it was, the whole thing was solved. And then I had to do some uh, literary horse trading and say, well, you can throw out this person, but I'm keeping this one. <laughs> you know? I said, oh, okay. But uh, I'm still irritated and I feel guilty that I couldn't put in Elizabeth Hand yeah, because yeah. she was very, very good. The truth is they just didn't like the stories. I don't get it. Um, uh, now, so about that post story, I, I, I had a very, very bad idea uh, for a post story. I, I wanted to put in a, a story that's completely atypical of Poe called The Domain of Arnheim. Oh, yeah. There's nothing but a landscape description. <laughs> and so Jeffrey came along, he saved my ass. He said, Peter, I think we'll put in Berenice because a lot of people don't know that story at all. Many don't know it very well. And it's really an eerie story. So once I saw a reason, I, I agreed. <laughs> um, well, I'm going uh, to make an argument that's both complex and incoherent. <laughs> <laughs> that's your trademark, Gary. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that there are lots of individual stories taken out of context of this book that I would not consider canonical stories at all. Oh, sure. Uh, in the context of the book, they begin to define a kind of constellation of essentially outsider writing. Hmm. Uh, that, that is a tradition. Once, in other words, once you start looking at a Kellyanne story, once you start looking at Tim's um, um, story, or even the Cheater story, and it begins to resonate with stories from a hundred years earlier. Yeah, exactly. You begin oh, to realize really? that things yes. like, you begin to make... Luella Miller, what was that? Uh, and the few people I talked uh, Give me that first one. Who are... Um, but it, it, uh, this is a recommendation if you have the book, it's a good because Cecilia Holland is doing the same thing and, and having the same reaction I did. You read the book in chronological order, and at first you're looking at a historical survey, and then linkages begin to appear. Mary Wilkins. And uh, resonances begin to appear. And by the, and, and by the time you're in this sort of, um, I hate to use the word, postmodern final section of the final section of the book, 
you realize that a web has been created. And that some of these stories which are, there's a story in it which is probably my fault by a guy named Jack Snow. Who, oh yeah. Who, who was dead and forgotten. <laughs> and it's a, it's, a, it's a comic book story. Uh, the Robert Block story has a, has, a, has a vault of horror kicker at the end. Yeah, a, I know, but, a, but most Robert Block stories but they do. do. <laughs> uh, but it's an important story when you look at it in the context of all the other stories. So uh, the argument I'm making is that defining a canon is not the same thing as choosing canonical stories. That's a good point. That's right. um, I will I will counter that argument only to the degree that I'm sorry. Fire away. Seabury Quinn. Not <laughs> canonical. No way. No, no how. Oh, Seabury. Even Quinn even so in context, he is not canonical. <laughs> that story, I'm sorry, is the worst story in the book. Doesn't <laughs> think that was the worst one? And it takes 37 pages. Oh my well, God. Yeah. And you didn't include Dennis Edgerson. You didn't include Scow. You didn't include. No, I didn't uh, include Scow. Seabury Quinn I, had to be in. I tried. Oh, I tried to include Dennis, and he was one of the people they just didn't like. Really? So that's extraordinary. I, I don't get it. I don't know. But what? Why? Why did the Library of America over, even were allowed to overrule I don't get you? it. I, mean, I, I don't get it. Are you the editor? I know. Well, that's true. There were these hidden, hidden godlike forces that at the, <laughs> at the last minute, at the last minute swept in and said, well, we're not having that one. We're not having that one. Carl I had Edward the, Wagner? Carl Edward Wagner was another one. I had him up until the like last him. minute. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I had a really, not Sticks, right, but, right. But, but, but another story. Right. I should have picked any Sticks, probably. Of them, any, oh, any number but, of them would have done. But they, they, they refused to let him be in. Yeah, I can't believe that. Yeah, you I think, I think that was one of the horse trades. Yeah. What would be worthwhile would be for you to at least release the list of the stories that were, that were meant to be in there, but which were nixed, so we could assemble yeah. the whole okay. thing. Uh, I got it somewhere. I mean, <laughs> in fact, and actually, if you were to write down all your adventures you had while editing this, <laughs> oh, that would I'm probably be an entertaining. They'll essay. never hire me again if I. Do. <laughs> 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 On the whole, though, it was it was great, and um, and it's largely because of Jeffrey O'Brien, whom, as you were hinting, and as you were hinting, is a person of real catholicity of taste, yeah. and uh, is and has tremendous affection for work that many people like Jeffrey O'Brien wouldn't even bother to read. That he does bother to read them, and he really loves these kinds of books. Well, let, let's also be honest. Uh, uh, Jeffrey O'Brien also knows what sells. Um, yeah, that's true, I too. Had, okay, the Library of America at Lovecraft that's right. sold 25,000 copies in three months or something like yeah. that. It's it, it staggered, the fastest seller ever for the Library of America. Years before that, I had lunch with him, and we were talking about what, what, what was doing well, what wasn't doing well. He said Longfellow, oddly enough, did huh. surprisingly well, and the worst seller at that time, at least in Library of America, were the two volumes of Gertrude Stein. Lovecraft <laughs> 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 was right. Yeah. He hated Gertrude Stein. Uh, so I said, yeah, well, she's, she should be out of the canon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, 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 I That's reassuring. Uh, it is. It's very reassuring. Yeah. Well, that stuff is hard to read, isn't it? I mean. <laughs> oh, she, she's not reading Brian, you mentioned your your colleagues, and you're at a uh -huh. distinguished university, and I'm, I'm I'm curious as to what the more well traditional oriented senior professors at Brown would make of a book like this. Well, I, I think that. Uh, uh it, it's funny because I think that they would actually be very happy in the sense that it's a Library of America book. So my, my dean, for instance, <laughs> yes. wrote me a note of congratulating oh, me on my inclusion in the Library of America volume, which he actually didn't have any idea what to, <laughs> what it was. Um, Just as well. So in, in that sense, I mean, it's seen as prestigious. Whether they'll uh, go and read it, I, I think that they'll, they'll go and buy it. 
<laughs> and uh, that's maybe Brown all that matters in this case. Yeah. 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 We, I mean, at some point, I hope we can talk about where the Library of America goes from here in terms of single author collections in our field. Uh, because I, I have also been talking, I mean, I, finally we got them to do beers. Mm -hmm. Who else is worthy? I've been thinking about this. I've got, I've, I've got uh, two other names that, I, that I'm pretty sure they're going to do. I know they're going to do a David Goodis volume. Right. Oh, and they're thinking very hard about Cornell Woolrich. Well, Brad, the situation with bribery is frankly, I mean, I don't know that there's been any real discussion at the Library of America. There ought to be, though. But there yeah, ought Bradbury, to be, but, good God. but Mr. Mr. Congdon is going to get in the way. He's oh. going to ask so much money huh. that it's not going to happen. Oh, um, <laughs> that's right. So, Interfere with your client's career. It years before we yeah. see a Bradbury in Library of well, there's also a market common sense here. I mean, they know that all the Bradbury that anybody wants is not only in print, but in bookstores, widely available, and they're going against cheaper editions of even hardcover editions. Well, you can well, say the same thing about Philip Roth. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah I, mean, I mean, I think there is a certain altruistic sense in the Library of America that we ought to do certain people because they should be in the Yeah, there is. Yeah. There is uh, and Bradbury, and I'm, certainly. I'm sure they've talked about Bradbury, whether they've made any actual efforts in that regard, I don't know. Well, I'll give them a nudge. Yeah. That would be great. Mm. It would be fabulous. I, I don't, but I don't expect that to happen. The other two mm. writers that I can think that in our field, if they're really in our field, that have to be in there eventually, I think, are Shirley Jackson and Fritz mm. Leiber. Fritz Leiber, yes. Volumes. I mean, they're, they're in here, would be great. And Shirley mm. Jackson But Shirley also. Jackson and Fritz Leiber yeah. have to have separate volumes. That would be fabulous. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I think the Fritz Leiber volume would be terrific. Be terrific. You don't like Shirley Jackson? I'm much more crazy about Fritz Leiber. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I mean, Shirley Jackson is you know, really borderline. For yeah. yeah. She's yeah, borderline that, that, everywhere. True. I mean, nobody knows where to put her. Well, yeah, Leiber is so much one of the, the family. Yeah, yeah, yeah very yeah. much so. He used to come and listen all the time. Oh, yeah, remember? yeah. Sure. Did she? Yeah. Oh, very nice. Hmm? She liked, un she had a complete set of unknown. Oh, great. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh well, yeah. that, that explains a lot. Yeah. And she was in FNSF. I don't know about that, but that's possible. Well, that would I make sense, that too. Would, that, would, that would be all right, yeah. Even though she doesn't like well, 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 one of the odd things they are doing since they've reduced the size of the volumes is they don't want, they want to do four novels in a collection if they can, which means that limits the size of the novels that they're able to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But well, the, Cornell Woolrich, they, they could do five or six. Yeah, that's yeah. right, that's right. <laughs> this reminds me that there are certain authors I was able to keep in this book because I chose stories that are only two or three pages long. Mm. And uh, it may not have been the strongest <coughs> representation of their work, but at least at least there I got them in the book. Yeah. You know? yeah. I was... Um, that isn't true in your case, of course. Oh. <laughs> we had a good long... Me and Seabury Quinn. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> we have the long stories. But um, I was dismayed to hear that... Uh, uh, um, uh, Joyce Carol Oates objected, uh, called uh, Raymond Chandler misogynist. Right. Um, a, uh, I don't think it's true at all. And B, if he was, what bearing does that have? Yeah, it has to do with his literary exactly. Oh, it's, it's like it's, looking at Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard and saying racist. racist. Yeah. Yeah. And you think, yeah, so. Yeah. Um, I don't know. There, there was a, 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 a tone of disappointment in that, but also <laughs> of anger, you know. That, it did the, seem beside the point. From my recollection, though, I think she, on the whole, liked 
Chandler, no? I don't I can't remember I don't know. that review. I was so ticked off of yeah. the, the, the I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think of any unadmirable or, or, or shallow female character in Chandler. I'm not coming up with any. Let's see how it's going. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Well, I, I, I that's I a nice way to put it. Really. I don't think she was making the argument that there should not have been a volume. No. No, no, no that's true. Welcome to the volume. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. The, okay. Let's go back a little bit further. Uh, Mark Ashton Smith, Robert E. Howard. I don't know whether they deserve a volume for themselves. No offense. Uh, Boy, the Scott, Robert E. Howard Society. Oh, they'll knows. kill me. But <laughs> Scott, Scott Connors does tell me that there's going to be a penguin. Classics, Robert E. Howard, which is good. Mm. That's, that's, that's good, that, Art. That's good. Mm. Mm. Also, I would I, think the qu question would be for, say, Clark Ashton Smith. He has a handful of just brilliant stories, but does he have 800 pages? Well, mm. my my take on this, which is a minority opinion, probably, is that Smith should not be should not have a whole volume in the Library of America mm. for his stories. He should have a whole volume for his poetry. Mm. Yes, yes, mm. but that's never going to happen. No, because alas. his poetry is so old-fashioned, so. Oh, Longfellow's like hot. The kind of poetry that's being written now, it'll, 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 it'll make it Longfellow's bigger than Gertrude Stein. Well, <laughs> maybe I'd wait 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any writers in these volumes who might become resurrected because of the new edition? I, I, I don't oh, think there's going to be a volume of Harriet Preston's father. There is, though. <laughs> not in the Library of America. No, 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 but she has been, re I mean, yeah. uh, people like Ashtree Press and, 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 right. and uh, you know, Congress Press. I'm, and, 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 and I'm talking about outside of a specialty collector's genre market. Jessica Amanda Salmason did great work. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, no, I don't I don't know that a whole lot of others who aren't already in the Library of America, like the phone no. and stuff, yeah. will make it. I mean, uh, no, they're Irving, Madeline there, Yale win, and Gertrude Yale. Atherton. When I look at the 19th century writers, I, mm -hmm. it's interesting, there's sort of different vectors. Let me look at that hand. Um, some of them, uh, some of them were a Because there's some of these people who, uh, well, obviously some of them became Willa Catherine and Peter Fortin. Some who became, who stayed alive as sort of precursors of genre, like, uh, mm -hmm. Robert Chambers. Mm, yeah. 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 We remember nothing except the Exactly. That's right. The King in Yellow's it. And, and there was so much of it. Remembered except it. Yeah, but, yeah. but um, there was so much of it. Of, of, of the other of, stuff. Of the well, other that's stuff. how he, he was a bestseller. 1907, yeah. the yeah. number one bestseller was Robert W. Chambers, The Fighting Chant. Mm -hmm. Perfect rubbish. <laughs> like most bestsellers. I, I do think what you said, Gary, earlier, that it's not necessarily they're canonical stories, but they do kind of form a, a, a kind of I constellation of things. Mm -hmm. I think that's. That's right, and so there are stories that, that would be kind of forgotten or lost or that we people haven't read since, except for Peter, apparently, until <laughs> this came out, um, that, uh, that now people are going to see within a context and see a kind of um, under-tradition or whatever you want to call yeah. it. A kind of yeah, I, I love that yeah. idea. Well, I mean, especially those 19th century writers were really writing before this field was a genre. Exactly. Yeah, before it split off, right. yeah. Yeah. or was split off. It's, um, you're mentioning that Jack Snow story, which I did... I bought a Jack Snow book just because Gary happened to be remembering something he'd read when he was 12 years old. <laughs> and uh, so I picked this really crazy story about a, a demonic fellow who uh, thinks he's made a deal that's going to see him uh, through to uh, extremely happy circumstances. Instead, he discovers that he's condemned and condemned and condemned. Uh, so I, 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 I chose that story. And months later, Jeffrey O'Brien said to me, you know, I had real doubts about that Jack Snow story. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I had to think, and we all had doubts about it. He said, but I, I, in the end, I realized 
it was so purely of itself. It was so much an example of that kind of writing that he wanted to see it in. You put in John Collier, whom I love. Yes. Fabulous writer. Isn't he British? I mean, you know, yes. Do we consider him American or British? Uh, Jeffrey O'Brien more or less said, I want to see a Collier story. All right. I love Collier. <laughs> oh, I think Collier is much undervalued. Oh, yeah, he's great. Really has to be. He worked in Hollywood a lot. Yeah, yeah, and that, and that was the justification. That's citizenship. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but who else? Uh, well, I mean, you were talking about Atherton. I, I've done a lot of work on Atherton. And did I, you? I did a slim volume of her horror stories for University of Tampa Press. And let's be honest. Oh, I bought that. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, the case of death and other stories. Um, and let's be uh, Atherton in her time was a huge bestseller. Yeah, she was the best-selling female writer of American writer of the early 20th century. Outsold Cather and Wharton by far. <laughs> uh, 1922's bestseller uh, was Black Oxen by Richard Atherton. But it's all forgotten and deserves to be forgotten. Quite frankly, she was just not that good a writer. Uh, and she was actually a fairly important California regional writer. <laughs> and she wrote some nice uh, ghost stories. Well, that's the thing. And yeah. but her ghost stories really are probably the only thing of hers now that are worth reading. Yeah. I mean, our field is very open to the old school, as it were. Yeah. We like to follow our history. You know, all mm. the way back to, to way beyond Paul and Irving, all the way back through the Gothic, you know, right. you go back to Homer's Europeans. But um, uh, so there will always be a market, you know, whether even it be a, a, the market for like Ashby Press publications to resurrect these writers, many of whom really did their best work, as it happens, in the weird. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even though they wrote tons and tons and tons of other stuff that that once was widely read, but is now forgotten. That's an interesting point that uh, these people with big bodies of work um, from 19th century or turn of the century uh, and were big bestsellers, mm -hmm. the sort of general public has forgotten them, but we've hung on to yeah. the work they did. For Although, the, and, and, but the thing is, uh, but the, the weird stuff was not bestseller either right. at mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. But Robert, mean, Robert W. Chambers yeah. shifted gears, I think, because that stuff wasn't selling so well. So he said, mm -hmm. I, I need to make a living. So I'll crack out these shop girl romances. Yeah. <laughs> but Chambers is a great example because I, I, I doubt anyone living has read uh, many of his uh, mainstream stuff. But things like The King in Yellow, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, her reputation. of our field. Oh, yeah. Right? You can't get along if you haven't read those. It's well, a very strange story, however, a pair of reputations. Great. I mean, it's almost incoherent. Oh, very disturbing. It's like he was drunk or something. I know, I know. That whole King and Yellow collection is wonderful yeah, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> People like uh, William Hope Hodgson couldn't yeah. survive uh, if the mainstream general readership were supposed to sustain them. But yeah. we think, oh, yeah, the well, Nightland. And here's cool. another one. F. Marion Crawford is another. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, not only was a well-known a popular writer of historical novels mostly, but critically acclaimed in his day. Huh. Mm -hmm. And the, even that has now fallen to the wayside. Yeah. I mean, there is, I don't know if there's still this F. Marion Crawford society, uh, there used to be. Huh. Uh, they were trying, they keep trying to flog, you know, <laughs> Crawford trying to get yeah, out his sure. stuff like Mr. Isaacs back into print, but nobody wants to read that. Well, <laughs> in general, is, is, is in general, genre writing tends to survive. Like, let us say, yeah. Sherlock Holmes. You know? yeah, yeah. People well, will be reading Sherlock Holmes from now on. Well, but I was going to say the mystery story, the mystery writer readers don't seem all that as receptive to the older stuff huh. as the horror school. There are great mystery writers from the 19th century. I mean, Anna Catherine Green, has anybody ever read her? No. Good stuff. 
but yeah. most mystery writers don't read the older stuff. Even some mm. uh, writers well, that don't. I love yeah. and I wrote right. about, John Dixon Carr has fallen largely out of print. Ah. He wrote 80 novels, yeah. and they're all wonderful. They but, were good. But they don't, people don't read them anymore. Earl he Stanley Gardner. Yeah, he, well, not really. Gardner. Gardner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Greek coffin mystery. Whatever you know, was Gardner's good. best stuff are those Black Mask stories that he wrote before Perry Mason. Those oh. were actually yeah. good. Mm. But uh, no, the mystery field, the reader, mystery readers seem not as keen on reading the old stuff as, as the horror. I wonder, and horror, and you could expand it to fantasy and science oh, fiction and altogether. I wonder if our field is unique in retaining affection for our history. I think it's very likely. You know. <laughs> there is a degree of science fiction in the book. And there, there are the all-ball one-off stories. When you think of science fiction, Charlotte Perkins Gilman is now much more widely known for science fiction stories, uh, except for this one story. This one great you know, story. Which, yeah, which yeah. is in every anthology ever done. And it turns out one of the reasons, I, I one of the reasons the yellow wallpaper survived so well was because it was a favorite of oral interpretation class. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was really? a textbook mm -hmm. for decades. Wow. Oh, because it's like a dramatic monologue? Read it aloud. Oh, read it aloud. You yeah. can't read it aloud. It's the scariest damn story. It's, yeah. and, 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 you know, I think there's a lot of people assume it's just like a psychological horror story. Nah. No, there's a supernatural. Those, there's little yellow people running around in, in the garden. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and in the wallpaper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was we just... go uh, to our audience. Oh, there oh, yeah. What time? We're, we're at the Porter Hill. Okay. okay. Yeah. Anybody have questions? Sure. <coughs> Instead of say the Phantom Farmhouse, which actually I think is a the Phantom story. Farmhouse, yeah, the, what was my other choice? Um, I, 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 had to, uh, I, I had to make judgment calls on all those pulp records. <coughs> Carl Jacoby I wanted to put in, he, he got cut. The, 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 the what of Yig by the woman. Well, that, that was well, a little press. That was a little press. What about Joseph yes. Brennan, did you consider him? I, I sure did, uh, uh, but they didn't like that. Huh. Um, uh, anyhow, I, I thought... Yeah, he, backyard off. That's right, that's Man. right. Yeah. What are they thinking? I know, I don't... I, I, sometimes they didn't make sense to me, but... Uh, I thought Seabury Quinn was still kind of thought of fondly. You know what I wanted I, to put I, in, though, when I read them, I realized I couldn't, were those Damp Man stories. Yes, the Damp Man again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they I were all the, weird tales. There were like the three or four of them. Oh. Yes. And they're, and they're, they're about this kind of monstrous, man squishy, returns. wet being who looks like, a, looks like Nero Wolf, kind of. Except he sort of looks like the Michelin Man. Yeah. <laughs> and he strides along the, alongside the sewers. Um, underground, and yes. he, he pops up and he terrifies women. Oh. Anyhow, I, I just like the name of Damp Man. Yeah. They're yes. written by a woman, Alice. Alice and Harding. Very good. And I had another story by Alice and Harding about wooden, about toy soldiers that kid plays with, that eventually kill him, I think. Um, <laughs> of course they do. <laughs> uh, but uh, Allison didn't make the cut because th those stories weren't good enough. Um, I forget how we got on this. Yeah. Oh, Seabury Quinn, I just sort of liked it. I mean, may, it may not be his best work. Yeah. Uh, in case people didn't know, Seabury Quinn was the highest rated among weird tale readers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but that... <laughs> that's not a recommendation. <laughs> Dan Brown is a bestseller, but that doesn't... Yeah, good point, good point. You don't like Dan Brown. 
Right up to it. It, 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 yeah. uh, it comes as far forward in the present as I could possibly make it. The well, the story, a story by a great young writer named Ben Percy, and it was published 2007. That's pretty recent. <laughs> I, I wonder if any other library market volume has anything as recent. I, that's right. I'm that's sure right. not. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> It's almost a precondition that they don't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a library of America does, mm -hmm. does not like, apparently, on principle, to publish living authors. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for single volume uh, collections, the only two exceptions were Eudora Wealthy and, and oh, North Roth. Yeah. Right. Well, that's science fiction. So. Yeah. No, there's no space opera. They, they told me they didn't want science fiction, and for a volume called American Fantastic Tales, rather surprisingly, they said, and we don't want any fantasy. Hmm. <laughs> that is puzzling. Well, I think they're using fantastic in the, set, the yeah. French set, the fantasy. Ah. It's pretty much horror. Oh, well, but ho horror takes in a lot of ground, yeah. you know. Yeah, that's right. I tried. I tried to smuggle in my friends Delia Sherman and uh, Ellen Kushner, and, that, and that's where they when they said no, we don't want any fantasy. Huh. And it may be that they're planning another one. You know that yeah, they might yeah. want to do one of those. Yeah. Ma'am. I'm sure they are. Yeah, because O'Brien would be really open to that. Yeah. It's a, as far as I know, they're having talks. And don't you wish we could all vote on the contents? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the board will vote. It'd be a great idea. I think they feel they've kind of covered the ground with novels. Um, though I wish, I, I, I wish there'd been more Chandler stories and uh, Hammond stories, you know. That would have been good. But there, and there are many, Wait, many good ones. Are they? Story? I, I don't, don't remember. I don't know. I thought it was novels. No, they're novels. I mean, they've, stories. they've done. They've done. They did the. I'll tell you, they did the Hammett short stories, and I'll let you. I'll let you know a little secret about that. Mm. I had. I have done a lot of research on Hammett, and they somehow knew that, or maybe I mentioned it to them, mm -hmm. and they wrote to me saying, "What text of Hammett should we use?" Mm. And I said, "You have to go back to the Black Mask." Or other magazines, yeah. because <coughs> all the book publications by Hammett from the 1940s onward were rewritten by Ellery Queen. Really? Uh, yes. No kidding. I found, wow. that, I found evidence of that in the Ellery Queen papers Amazing. At, at Columbia University. Good. That's there's really one uh, that's shocking. It's shocking. There's one story that in in the book publication, as edited by Ellery Queen, comes out to be 13,500 words. The Hammett version in Black Mask is 17,000. They, wow. they took a shredder. And he was not Don't ever read any Hammett short stories in book form except Life of America, unless you have Black Mask. Huh. Huh. Wow. It's horrible. It's That's horrible. astounding. All that stuff, Continental Law, big knockover, they're all corrupt. No kidding. Yeah, it's dreadful. That's, that's shocking, actually, as you say. One but they, good thing know, about... They, they did follow my advice, and they, they went back to Black Mask. They would, because that is their natural tendency. So, sometimes the production of this volume is slowed up a bit because they had to track down the original magazine appearance of these mm. stories. And w in one or two cases that was very, very hard to do. In one case, there are only two excellent copies of that magazine. Huh. <laughs> huh. 
And one is owned by a guy who won't let anybody see it. (laughs) (laughs) He probably doesn't have it. That's right. He lost it. Yeah. Oh, really? I'll be down. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The uh, the starting question though was uh, the one by Julian Hawthorne, which is rather. No, it was from some English magazine that that that, that disappeared a long time ago. Really? Um, because, well, the thing is, I mean, I thought one of these reprint houses like Ashtray has done a Julian Hawthorne collection, you know? <coughs> really? More than one? I didn't think there was more than one. Yeah. Well, the, 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 the list of original appearances are on the back here. Um, after the bio notes. Notes. Notes on the text. There we go. All right. Wilkins we'll Freeman. Blah, 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 blah. Julian Hawthorne. All, all Story Weekly. That, that can't be that rare, surely. No. No, well, it's true. April 13th, 1989. I can't imagine that's that rare. In fact, I think. According I think, to Stefan, it is. Oh, well, no. Library of Congress has microfilmed the entire Argosy and All Story. Hmm. I'm pretty sure that's a complete, complete run. But. But you, ma'am. Um, in that, in that collection and, and putting together the history, do you have the sense that there are probably stories that even people filing houses that you don't know about that are wonderful? Uh, oh, I'm sure of it. I, I don't have an encyclopedic uh, knowledge at all of, um, you know, the full range of the fantastic or stories. Um, I did my best, and, and Stefan was very useful to me, and he had copies of damn near everything. But uh, there, he, he has lapses in his reading too, I'm sure. Well, I'm, I'm, I've been doing a lot of excavation, uh, and I've, I've proposed, I think, to Ashtray, a dual volume, that is to say, two authors, because neither of them wrote enough to uh, fill a single volume. Great. Irvin S. Cobb, the fish head guy, yeah, Irvin yeah. S. Cobb, wrote six or seven other stories that are really, really good, including one called The Gallowsmith. Oh, oh wonderful. Not supernatural, but oh, a chilling, chilling story. And then the other guy, who wrote contemporaneously, also was a kind of a well-known short story writer of the first two decades of the 20th century, Gouverneur Morris. Back there in the grass. That's his (coughs) story, but he wrote about six or seven others that are pretty good. So I want to put those two together in a volume. (laughs) Anyway. Tim, did you ever think uh, that Patmore was a horror story when you were writing? Actually, no. Um, it's interesting to hear now that, in fact, it's a horror anthology. <laughs> I mean, it says fantastic. Um, I mean, you know, it's got a ghost in it. That'll, that's a good start. Um, but no, I, uh, I, I don't think it was, for example, scary. Um, but then I... No, okay, good. I always figure... I, if somebody says, well, what sort of stuff do you write? I just say, I write the sort of stuff that gets reviewed in Locus. <laughs> because that, Gary Wolf. That, that's kind of a, a category. Huh. Um, but no, distinctions between, you know, is it horror, is it fantasy? Um, 
My own prejudice is, I figure it's got to be supernatural. If it's just a guy with a chainsaw, hmm. um, that's mainstream. It's not our stuff. If hmm. he's a dead guy with a chainsaw, then it's our stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Right. Nah. <laughs> uh, you know, I've, I've had this strange experience in my career where everybody who is literary thinks I'm writing horror, and everyone who's into horror thinks I'm writing literary. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so... Uh, that's uh, the worst of both worlds. Right, exactly. Yeah. And then suddenly, at certain points, that's reversed, and, and they seem to get it, and both get it for very different reasons. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I think it's a, a story that, for me, it's hard to decide if it's, if it's horror, or if it's, if it's psychological horror, or what exactly it's doing there. And that's, well, that's what's interesting to me about it. The overlords flip for it. You got your own solo volume coming up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and in 50 years, you'll right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you should. I have one more question. Say no. No way. <laughs> Little Red's Tango? Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's a horror story or not. I, I, I wrote it for conjunction for that issue. It was intended, I suppose, it was aimed at the ju exact juncture between mainstream literature and, and fantastic writing. And it is, of course, uh, a, 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 a saint's legend. You know, that's what it is. It has beatitudes and has all this Jesus stuff in it. Um, and it has a vampire, I think. A little baby, a little tiny, little small boy vampire, um, and a talking mouse. And uh, what? What more could you? It, it, it is. Uh, it's, not, it's not a mainstream. It's not mimetic. Let's say that. Yeah. At all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah clearly. <laughs> so what? <laughs> That's probably good. That's probably good. That is good. Yeah. Oh yeah. After right after this, should anybody be interested? The LOA is uh, hosting a party, though they didn't send anybody here to do it, but we're having a party rooms 2020 and 2021 as of just about now. So everybody wants to go on up. All right. Free booze. Free booze. That's right. That's, that's, there you go. That's all you need to know. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.